0: Welcome to the podcast about investing in startups, where existing investors can learn how to get the best deal possible. And those that have never before invested in startups can learn the keys to success from the venture experts. Your host is Nick Moran, and this is The Full Ratchet. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for another episode. Today, we welcome Mark Peter Davis and ask him to wear the entrepreneur hat as he shares his insights on how founders should search out, pitch, and convert investors. In this portion of the interview, we address the key components of a fundraise strategy, what types of investors to pursue, where entrepreneurs should search for investors, how founders can conduct due diligence on investors, the three critical documents that an entrepreneur needs called the bait, the presentation, and the how. And finally, the main red flag that most often disqualifies a pitch from further consideration. Here's the interview on The Hunt for Investors. Today, Mark Peter Davis joins us from New York. Mark is a serial founder and investor. He's managing partner at Interplay Ventures and is author of the book, The Fundraising Rules. Mark, thanks so much for joining us.
1: Glad to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Can you start us off with uh, your background and how you became involved in startup investing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I think the story kind of begins with childhood for me. Um, I've been a lifelong entrepreneur. It's not something I really chose. It wasn't something I kind of went out looking for. Uh, It's what I did for fun. It was a hobby as a kid. It was baseball cards in elementary, candy in junior high, computers to graduating seniors in high school. And it went (laughs) from there. Uh, Five companies in college. I never really stopped. I would say the my career, once I kind of got in the workforce, triangulated two different aspects. One was uh, building operational expertise through working consulting and starting companies. And the second was learning how to vet opportunities and do pattern matching through work at two different venture funds here in the city, in New York. So I've been a VC for about a decade, but uh, fancy myself more of a serial entrepreneur than an investor and probably have started a couple dozen companies to date. And that has all kind of come together to bring Interplay to life, which is a little bit different than a traditional venture firm. We do invest actively, so that's a big part of our story. But we're also a foundry. So that means we're going out, taking ideas off the shelf, finding teams, and building and launching companies. So that's a huge chunk of our time is actually launching new ventures internally.
0: Gotcha. Any uh, entrepreneurial experiences in particular that uh, you'd like to highlight?
1: I mean, I think the story goes for most entrepreneurs and for myself as well. Like It's just a lot of tenacity and fighting to stay in the game. I failed a ton. Uh, I've made a tremendous number of mistakes. I've been through cycles, good and bad in the entrepreneurship side, where I could have avoided a whole bunch of pain points had I had the right mentorship. And I think through all of those different ventures that didn't go well along the way, uh, every time I picked up a handful of skills. So I had five companies in college that were, some were good ideas, some were bad you know, from like delivery companies, you know, a lot of the you know stuff college folks do because they're, they're solving the pain points in front of them to classified ad network, which I thought was a bit more interesting. But if you don't have the right mentorship, you're probably not going to make the right choices if you're a first time entrepreneur figuring it out. And that's where I found myself a lot of my career. So I've kind of gone the hard path of trying to learn a lot of the lessons the hard way rather than having someone whisper in my ear the answer. But netting it all together, I've picked up some tools, tips, skills, and a lot of scar tissue, which uh, I think now makes me dangerous.
0: (laughs) Before we kick off the topic here, we haven't yet done an episode on startup foundries or venture labs, although we do have one coming out in the near future. So would you mind taking a second to give us a sense for how Interplay works and why it's different from a traditional venture model?
1: Yeah. So Interplay is a foundry and investment firm. So we're investing in companies at all stages we're sector geo and stage agnostic we're also a foundry and that means we wake up every day we have great you know ideas that we think are interesting we go and recruit teams we put those companies together and we launch them and we stay involved with those companies for the life of the company so we're hiring a lot for those companies so if you're looking to to get a job and join up at a company just go to interplay.vc there's a way to apply we're also looking for people to become ceos and founders of new companies one thread I'll, i'll highlight for everybody is the first 10 or so companies we created, and we've co-founded 20 now, are a new suite, a reimagined suite of services for the startup community itself. The reality is when I was a CEO of a company before, I found a lot of the service providers in the market didn't understand the startup community, how we worked. They wanted to use fax machines, weren't getting the right products or the types of service. They weren't tech enabled. And so we've gone out and trying to reimagine those companies, mainly because we just think that needed to be solved for the ecosystem. By bringing people together as founders who are from the startup community first, and then building out the businesses. Just to give you a sense of the types of services that are there, we've got an insurance brokerage with Foundershield. Nomad Financials doing accounting and finance for startups. We have marketing as a service, SDRs, CMOs, part-time CMOs with Barrick North. Business development through Fulton Waters. So if you're trying to tap into Fortune 1000 or, or line up more customers, they can help with that. If you're looking for office space, there's Truman James. 20 Pines, helping on the recruiting side. Venwise in the market, helping executives get out of the lonely cycle of being a CEO or a founder and get kind of a peer group of support and education. You've got Common Legal, helping on the legal services side, and there's more. So these companies are out there. They're doing great stuff. You can find them on Venture Juice if you're just looking for a simple way to engage the market and see the list and kind of know what's available to you. But those companies are out there that we serve a huge chunk of the venture-backed companies in the country at this point. And that's growing rapidly. And it's just all about, you know, they're all for us biased. They're all run by f- former entrepreneurs and founders. DevSpark, which I didn't mention before, is also there. They do tech development and product and design work. And they're all run by, you know, tech, DevSpark, for example, is run by a former venture back CTO turned CEO. Nomad Financials run by the former head of finance at Vimeo. The list goes on. They're kind of all from the ecosystem, reimagining those experiences and doing it the right way. So that's what we're doing.
0: Great. So today we're talking about the hunt for investors, and we're doing it from a bit of a different perspective as we're looking at it from the standpoint of the entrepreneur. Mark, let's start off with setting a strategy for a fundraise. Why is it important for entrepreneurs to develop a fundraising strategy, and what are some of the key components they should include?
1: Yes, I cover a lot of this stuff in my book. So for you mentioned in the beginning, I wrote a book called The Fundraising Rules. Just a bit of background on that because I think it'll be a helpful resource for folks. Yeah. I'm an entrepreneur first. I actually went into venture to learn to be a better founder and spent the first five years of my career really getting kind of a deep understanding of the process and learning constantly from the VCs around me, from the entrepreneurs coming through the door. And I frankly, I watched a lot of people come in and just make mistakes in the process. What I started doing was documenting all of it, initially through a blog, which eventually became a book. Um, And so if people are interested, The Fundraising Rules is the name of the book. It's about 300 pages of a chronological A to Z to fundraise. Each chapter is a different step in the chronological process. So you can flip to the chapters. It's designed to be a handbook. I'm the worst book promoter out there. I wrote it for no other purpose than to help entrepreneurs in the market. (laughs) Um, And uh, hopefully it'll answer some of these questions. In terms of strategy, look, the fundraising process is a little bit of a game. And if you get the game, your odds of being successful are way higher. But the first thing people should do before they even get into the game of start trying to go and raise money from VCs is to think about whether or not they should actually be raising capital from VCs. It seems that the knee-jerk reaction for folks is: hey, I'm starting a company, I should go raise a boatload of money because it'll make this less painful, and or that will be prestigious, or whatever else. But 90 plus percent of the time, entrepreneurs shouldn't be seeking VC money. And that's why there's such a, a huge ding rate. From the number of pitches VCC to the number that they invest in, which is something, you know, people like to say it's like 1%. There's a lot of business side plans that aren't good, but there's also a lot of entrepreneurs that have good business plans that should be financing them differently. Just to take a step back, I think if you ask the average entrepreneur, and this will dovetail what I'm, the point I'm making here, what the drivers of success for their venture will be, you know, most people will say the stuff that I would have said before I kind of broke into VC. I'd say, market size, team. Strategy, a handful of other things. And they' the things that usually are ingredients of any standard pitch, fundraising document or otherwise. It's parts of the story of the, of the whole plan. But the reality is most people will fail to talk about how they finance their company. And if you define success as ultimately the entrepreneur's return on the venture they do, how they finance the company, how they structure it, the type of investors they bring along for the ride, will have a paramount impact on the outcome. For example, let's say someone goes out and starts a company that does really well gets to a 5 million dollar top line revenue run rate they've got profits the whole bit but they brought in VCs along the way who don't see kind of the return they need to have an impact on their fund when a company flatlines at 5 million bucks for the VC the game then becomes hey how do we expand this business let's take some risk on some new ideas let's maybe bring in more capital and dilute down the cap table to try some new angles but if the founder had actually funded it from the get go with investors that understand that type of profile, maybe you're fine with you know a cash flow business that's paying them with some frequency in terms of dividends or distributions, the founder could be crushing. In fact, one of the most impressive angel investors I've had in one of my companies along the way wasn't the VCs who managed to use sums of capital. It was a guy who had ramen bootstrapped a company for three years. He got it to a $5 million top line, a failure by every venture story, but he owned 100% of it. He had 80% profit margin, and he drove a Maserati. So there is a game in this of finding an alignment between your fundraising strategy and basically the the structure of the company. And I talk about this in a good bit of length and detail in my book. There's a two-by-two matrix I propose. I basically help people try to frame their approach or the type of investors they should be focusing on as a function of the scalability of the opportunity and how much capital they need to get there. And so the short of it is, if you don't need a lot of capital to build a small or medium company should be really careful to take investors who are down with the type of structure and the type of outcome you might realize. If you succeed at having a small business, but you convince folks along the way it's going to be a big business, you might have ruined what would have been an otherwise good return. Now, on the flip side, VC is a godsend for the right companies. It's not, VC is not bad. It's just about alignment. If you have a big company that needs to do a land grab, own market share, doesn't have inherent barriers on day one that requires scale to build barriers, VC is the name of the game as long as you have a big market and can build a big outcome. So the game I would say is before people even start formulating a strategy, the first step is to figure out what kind of capital you should be raising and make sure it's aligned with the right outcome and be communicating, hey, we're going to try to get this to profitability, $5 million business, flip it for 15 million bucks. There's investors who who would love that. And as long as you capitalize it properly, maybe the deal looks a little different than it might have in a normal venture deal. That can be a great outcome for everybody. After you figure that out, yeah, there, and if you've decided you're going for the VC game, there is a lot of stuff you can do to optimize your outcome. There's pre-fundraising, which most people aren't talking about, which is building relationships with investors before you're even in the game. There's a very powerful pattern of emailing people and saying, hey, I'm not looking to raise money. I just want to start a conversation. We will be out in the market down the road. And you can start to show people over this, uh, the subsequent months patterns of success. Hey, we're, we're going to set out. We're going to launch in this market. or start getting our our cost of acquisition nailed down, and then coming back month by month with updates. By the time you raise, they know you, they trust you, they can see that you're consistent, that you can execute. That's a very powerful part of the game. There's probably 100 pieces to figuring out the right strategy, many of which are illuminated in the book, but I would say some just high-level things. Make sure you're targeting investors that are actually aligned with your type of company. A lot of investors, unfortunately, have very generic websites, and they'll say they invest in anything IT. When the reality is they'll look for companies over a certain size, with certain revenue metrics, they might only actually do a couple sectors of an IT, You know, maybe they don't touch ed tech. I'd spend extra time looking at the portfolio, which will usually illuminate some patterns. You can see when they entered, Were they always doing seed or A, where are the patterns and all of that? And there's dozens and dozens of other steps that kind of take you through the whole sequence of the fundraising cycle. So I'll stop blabbing for a second. But I would say if everyone started with step one, which most people skip, and stopped and asked, how should I be financing this to maximize my return as an entrepreneur? People may come to very different conclusions about how they finance their companies, and they may be more prone to actually being successful at the end of the day.
0: Yeah, I think your point about pre-investment meetings, uh, every founder that I've ultimately invested in asked me for advice long before they ever asked for money.
1: Right, right. And it's just it's building that relationship. It's so much easier to invest in somebody you've gotten to know and you've gotten comfortable with. You know, they say they're going to be at a certain place at a certain time and they show up. It's the little things that signal a level of competence that uh, makes it less scary to give them your cash.
0: Yeah. I think, in fact, I asked all those founders if I could invest. So there's got to be a lesson in there.
1: (laughs) Yeah, totally.
0: So Mark, this process isn't just about finding any money, but it's about finding the right money. From your standpoint, what should entrepreneurs think about when selecting investors to pursue? And do you have any thoughts about the due diligence entrepreneurs should perform on their investors?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. I'd say there's two parts to that story that I think are super important. One is thinking about syndicate construction. So I think it's really important for every syndicate to include one party, whether they're the lead or not, but hopefully usually the lead that can be kind of the trusted resource for the entrepreneur. You also want another party who could hopefully de-risk future financings. Maybe they're lead, maybe they're a smaller investor in your seed round, for example, but you know they write a fat check in the A. And then the third thing I think you should always be looking for, people who can take operational friction out of the game. They have industry knowledge, a Rolodex, pieces of things that will kind of make it easier to build this company they might have pricing structuring expertise whatever it may be that's kind of a critical success factor for the company now beyond that obviously you need to get the money so you got to fill out the round but I would say people should really start with thinking about how they can kind of map some you know, check off some boxes and, and how they're building their team looking at these people more as partners not just sources of capital what I would say in terms of diligence I think it's it's worthwhile to do market diligence on folks. Best thing you can do is talk to founders that have taken their money. And I think when the VCs introduce or recommend them or suggest you reach out to them, you're probably not going to get the full story, just like you won't when you're hiring somebody and they offer their references. Those people are going to tell you what you want to hear, uh, may not tell you all the dirt. So I think just the fact that they can point to a few CEOs is validation that you know they've got the confidence that some CEOs will back them up. I probably wouldn't call those CEOs, or maybe you call them, but I'd also call some other folks that they'd interacted with in the past they didn't recommend. I think that's very powerful. The thing I think that's almost more important is to remember to think about the people across the table in a context outside of the fundraising process. It's so easy to get caught up in this is a deal dynamic, right? You're trying to do a transaction, almost like closing a customer, and you're so focused on closure that you're not thinking about kind of the human component the way you would any other relationship. (laughs) If you think about, right, I mean, it's easy. You get in this kind of psychology, I think. If you start thinking about these people as co-founders, well, there's a whole different set of expectations. And the reality is you're getting married to these folks in a lot of different ways. So I think if you put them in a, hey, would I be friends with this person in college? Do we click? You know, would I want this person to be on our founding team? Does it feel like they'd have the right work ethic and and be respectful of people in the right way? And I think ultimately what your gut should be asking is, does this counterpart of this VC feel like they're going to be my boss or do they feel like they're going to be my partner? And I think that's a big line in the sand for how investors operate. There's a sense of entitlement with the folks who think that because they own a small piece of your company and it, very often the VCs are a minority owner to the founders. They just have certain provisions and rights that entrepreneurs will, you know, or the VCs will feel like they're in control or it's their company first. There's a lot of other folks who know it's a partnership. They've got some rights, the founder of some rights. It's not a completely symmetrical relationship, but you need each other. It's codependent. You know, finding people who understand that I think is is a totally different world to be operating in.
0: Mark, assuming one has an idea of the type of investors they're looking for, what yeah. are your thoughts on where and or how founders should look for investors?
1: I think the world has changed from 15 years ago. VCs 15 years ago were hiding in ivory towers. You had to have a great, right? I mean, you had to have this great introduction for them to even, like, take the email. And now VCs, you know, their entrepreneurs are out there. There's an abundance of capital. VCs now almost live or die by the effectiveness of their marketing and their branding, right? They need entrepreneurs to know and come to them. I think it's really easy to find and access VCs today, right? I mean, I get people sending me plans through, you know, as easy as LinkedIn or Twitter, and I look at all of it. Not everyone probably does. Is there a lower hit rate on something in coming in cold? Sure. If it comes in from uh, someone I trust, the odds are just higher that it's been vetted. But I think getting to folks and building a relationship is really easy in the modern venture game. So I don't think there's any rocket science. Angel list, LinkedIn, there's tons and tons of resources. If you just Google, depending on what city you're in, VC is a city. There's probably an article listing a bunch of them. It's a pretty trivial exercise.
0: Yeah, we've had differing perspectives on the program so far about whether you need a warm lead to pursue an investor or not.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I've
0: found that the majority of my deal flow comes in cold, although I get plenty of referrals as well. And yeah. I typically tell people just send it all over. Um, totally. Because I'd rather make the decision to pass myself instead of somebody making that assumption.
1: Yeah. And everyone's got different styles. There are folks still who only invest in things that come in through, you know, a tight network. I just think increasingly the vast majority, I would say, of investors are open to the fire hose. So just get in front of them. I think obviously it's a human dynamic, right? So building a relationship or a rapport along the way, even if it is cold, super important. G- getting access is just not super complicated anymore. Getting everything else right—that's as difficult as it used to be.
0: Yeah, oddly enough, sometimes the the cold ones that come in turn into to warm ones because they come to me cold, but maybe it's uh, an energy play. And, and I know uh, uh, an investor that prefers energy deals. And so then I pass yeah. it along and and then it becomes a warm intro.
1: Right. Right. And, and maybe I, we do things like that all the time too. And you, know, you pass it to a buddy who knows a space and now it's a warm intro to that guy. That guy gets interested. It comes back. The person's now vetted by a peer. And then maybe <laughs> you follow your buddy in. You know, it's a, It's a game of pinball. You know, the key is to kind of, For the top of the funnel, it's to be in the game, and the complexity is how you handle it once you're in the game.
0: Right. This episode of TFR is brought to you by Brex. Your startup is going to change the world, and the right corporate card will get you there even faster. The Brex corporate card for startups offers 10 to 20 times higher limits than traditional corporate cards, automated expense tools, and huge rewards like four times points back on travel, three times back on restaurants, and two times back on recurring SaaS spend, and all with no personal guarantee. Sign up at Brex.com and get waived card fees for life with the code TFR. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Assure. For over three years, Newstack has been raising capital on a deal-by-deal basis, allowing individual investors to select each startup investment. Assure is the company behind the scenes that powers this process. When we have 10, 20, or 30 angels investing in a startup, we can't put all those folks directly on the startup's cap table. So those investors are rolled into a special purpose vehicle that occupies just one line item on the cap table. And Assure handles all ongoing fees, finances, and K-1s for us. We pay a one-time upfront fee and avoid all the required yearly admin filings and bills. If you run an angel group or you would like your LPs to invest in deal-by-deal sidecars, go to assure.co/tfr for 20% off your first SPV. And this episode of TFR is brought to you by Pacific Western Bank. to learn more. So you've cited the three documents an entrepreneur needs, yeah, the bait, the presentation, and the how. What are each and why are they necessary?
1: So I, I think in a short answer, the, the bait is the executive summary, the presentations, the PowerPoint deck, and the how is an operating model. But there's a little nuance to each that I, I have found is helpful, particularly for first time entrepreneurs, to make these documents uh, less daunting or at least to understand more effectively how to prepare them. The first thing is the executive summary really should only be a page. I don't think it needs to be more. And writing your business plan in a page is damn near impossible. The key for folks is to understand that the executive summary does not need to fully explain your business. What it needs to do is address a checklist of topics that a VC needs to see to profile the company to determine if there's any reason they shouldn't meet with you. Where is it located? What's the basic sector you're operating in? Some bios on the team, right? How much are you raising? What stage are you at? Tell us about revenue. Really basic things. Should a VC fully understand your operation angle after that? No. The goal is simply to get the meeting or the call. And if you have that mentality that you don't need to illuminate every dark corner of your strategy, uh, it's a lot easier to actually condense, consolidate it in one page, and then you'll kind of look like all the other well-prepared plans or executive summaries. Presentation. It's the document you share when you're in the meeting. It should give the 80-20 on the approach, all the key buckets that uh, VCs need to understand. Most of the same key buckets that you'd see in the executive summary plus a couple, but each of those would have a bit more detail. So someone leaves the meeting with kind of a working knowledge of what you're going to do. There's probably lots of stuff to unearth. The how, the operating model, it's a little different, a little nuanced. And I think a lot of people, if they come from other industries, particularly banking or financial backgrounds don't maybe fully understand what we're looking for on that side, I would say that the key thing is to understand is the difference between an operating model and a financial model. An operating model is driven off of operating assumptions, how you are going to build your company. Someone should be able to look at it and say, okay, at this month they're going to hire this person, spend these dollars on an ad campaign through this channel, expect this conversion rate, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Or they should be able to see in month three I hire a salesperson. I'm assuming that person's going to make eight calls per day. There's going to be X conversion rate to the second phase. And so many of those convert to customers and here's what they pay. And correspondingly, here's an increase in cost. So it's putting all of that stuff into a model where an investor can then look and say, all right, if I believe in these assumptions, and very often investors are investing in sectors where they are kind of fluent in some of the drivers of the operations, yep. they'll say, all right, this, these metrics look right. Therefore, we know how long this initial capital takes us, how com- big this company can get with some scale. And all, that, all the projections are, of course, wrong. But it gives you directional answers on what the business can be. It also shows how you plan to build a business. So are you doing marketing or sales? Is it inside sales or field sales? All that will be illuminated. So very powerful to understand the difference between the documents. A traditional financial model, you might say revenue grows by 5% every month. Well, that doesn't really show how you're building it. <laughs> if you're hiring salespeople and you have conversion metrics, and that leads to revenue, people understand that. That's the difference. So I think if you have those three documents, you're really off to a good start. There'll be other stuff that investors will ask for or require, but those are the universal things that'll show you how you act together.
0: Yeah. Whether it be my market strategy days, my product management days, or, or now startup investing days, I hate to see those models that show a capture based on percentage of market share over right. time. Right. You know, if, That's an it, output it's an output. It's not a bottom build. It doesn't, it doesn't show me how you're going to grow. Yeah. It it just makes a bunch of assumptions about, you know, half of a percent of the market is still a a tremendous opportunity.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's good to know. It's, there's something in that, that, okay, it's a big market, but the model really just needs to say like, Hey, it's basically, it's the details of the plan. And I think it's powerful. A lot of entrepreneurs who haven't created that going through that exercise or working with someone who can help them with it gives you a material advantage, I think, for you know actually figuring out what you're doing next versus figuring it out later. And starting to, you can start doing scenarios if I hire a person earlier. What does that do? And in some cases that maybe extends your runway if they're revenue bearing.
0: Hey Mark, with regards to the bait, are there any key yeah. red flags that most often jump out and may disqualify a pitch from further consideration?
1: I think there's probably a lot of little things that don't look great. I would say one of the things people aren't really thinking about is if you're doing something that a play that has design is a key element of differentiation so particularly consumer web mobile any of the things going on to send a really ugly one pager or powerpoint presentation over it's kind of being a dentist with bad teeth <laughs> I, I, I think there's a game of yeah i think there's a game of design where you know some of the people you can see clearly have to act together they have beautifully designed presentations it's art you know, their one pager is gorgeous. And you, you get it, it's impressionistic, it's visual. And it shows you that they have the DNA on the team to build the type of consumer product they're going after. Now, if they're doing something that's not design required, you know, it's not a necessity. But I think that's an angle a lot of people sometimes have these beautiful apps, but haven't invested the time to make something gorgeous on the presentation because it just didn't seem important. And I think they're doing themselves a disservice.
0: Yeah. If they can't sell themselves and the startup, then how are they going to sell their product?
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Thank you for tuning in to part one of the interview with Mark. Look out for part two, where we get into more detail on expectations during meetings with investors, due diligence, and also deal terms. And of course, I will summarize the takeaways and share a tip of the week. Until then, over-prepare, choose carefully, and invest confidently. See you next time.